Welcome to the Special Needs Navigator podcast, hosted by Eric Jorgensen. As a widowed father of an adult son with several challenges, primarily autism, Eric has and continues to walk the path many of you are on now. This podcast will introduce and explain resources and services that may assist in your journey. The views and opinions of our guests are their own and do not necessarily represent those of Eric Jorgensen or Special Needs Navigator. Welcome, everyone. Today, I will be talking with Sarah Nesbitt from Family Legal Advocacy Group. She's an attorney whose focus is family law. And she's going to be talking to us about dispelling some of those more common divorce myths. With everybody being cooped up in COVID, there may be more stress fractures apparent and things that you thought you could live with, maybe you're just not willing to live with, or maybe it's a straw that broke the camel's back. It's an unfortunate reality that divorce happens. And I want to make sure people understand if you're miserable, you don't have to stay miserable. There are other options. So we will be talking about a few things today. And after I go through this, I'll have Sarah talk about herself and about flag law. As you can see, there's quite a few different myths that we'll be addressing. Some of them probably overlap, but it helps to hear things presented, I think, in a couple different ways, because you never know what's going to register and what's going to click with you. That's enough of me talking. I'm going to turn it over to Sarah and let Sarah talk a little bit about herself and her firm. And then we'll get into the meat and potatoes. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk to your viewers about divorce. By way of introduction, my background, I am a Maryland attorney. Um, While there are commonalities in laws across states, family law is governed exclusively by your state's law. There are very few Supreme Court cases that govern family law. And so all of the advice and the things I'm talking about today are specific to Maryland law. You may see similarities in your state, but I encourage you to consult with an attorney in your state to find out exactly what the laws are there. With that being said, um, I'm a Maryland native, and I went to the University of Notre Dame, where I studied psychology and sociology. And my interest there and my emphasis was on child development and family dynamics. And so it was sort of a natural course then to end up in family law. When I was applying for graduate school, I was deciding whether to go and get my advanced degree in psychology and be a family therapist or go to law school. And I went the law school route, but I tell clients often, I feel like I put my therapist hat on fairly regularly to help them because at the end of the day, getting divorced is an emotional process. It's a financial process that we try to fit into a legal process. But the things that apply in most other areas of the law really don't apply to family law. After I graduated from Notre Dame, I taught in Baltimore City for two years. So I had a very interesting experience working with children and families, going through all different kinds of situations. I then went to law school and really focused in law school on family law and special education law. Those are the two areas where I've focused my whole career um, because, again, I really like the idea of working with children and families. Um, I've been practicing for over 10 years now and started Family Legal Advocacy Group about six years ago with my partner, Michael Katz. And what Michael and I really wanted to do is we wanted to start a different kind of law firm. We didn't want to be your traditional stuffy law firm. That's why we're not Katz and Nesbitt or Nesbitt and Katz or anything like that. We really believe that we are partners with families and we are advocating for families as a whole. So while we certainly represent one client, Our goal is to help a family transition through the process of separation and divorce and come out on the other side with their family intact, just in a new structure. So you'll hear a lot of catchphrases that I tell clients all the time, but one of my favorites is you get to divorce your spouse, you do not get to divorce your co-parent. 
and you have to parent with your spouse even when your divorce is final. So we really work to try to help those relationships. The other thing we believe firmly in at Flag is educating our clients. And that's why we always love these opportunities like Eric gave me to talk to people about what are your rights? What do the processes look like? What do you just need to know? Because you probably have never experienced this before if you're thinking about getting divorced. So we really try to educate our clients. And the other piece of the education that's important to us is that when your divorce is done, you're going to continue to work with this parent. And we see the same thing in our special education case. We want to get out of your case, but you still have to advocate for your child in the schools. And so we try to help teach our clients so they can be self-sufficient going forward and not need us anymore. We don't want clients to need us forever because we're expensive. Lawyers are expensive. And so we want to help clients find a way to advocate for themselves. So that's enough about me. As a typical lawyer, I could talk about myself all day. So one of the common myths that I hear from clients is... They say, I'm afraid I'm going to screw up my kids. Getting divorced is going to screw up my kids. And you hear all the statistics about the percentage of people that get divorced and the statistics about children in divorced households. But one of the things that I've learned in working with mental health professionals frequently is that it isn't divorce that screws up kids. It isn't divorce that's challenging for kids. It's conflict in their household and it's conflict between the people that they love. And so some of the things that I always remind my clients of is that if you're in an unhappy marriage and there's a lot of conflict in the house, you're modeling that conflict for your children. Oftentimes, parents who are separated and can separate with respect for each other and with a focus on their children can actually decrease the conflict because there's not as many decisions you have to make together. And so it's much better if you can separate to do so. Another common myth that we hear is that people will say, I think it's going to be cheaper to stay married. And while that can be true, because divorce is not inexpensive, there are a lot of things that can be done that can minimize the cost to your divorce. It's important to remember that there are all kinds of lawyers out there. They charge all different rates. Just because somebody charges $500 an hour and somebody else charges $300 an hour doesn't mean that they're necessarily any better at advocating for you than what you need. So it's important to look around for different lawyers. The other thing that's important to remember is how much work the lawyers have to do to get you divorced that runs up the cost. So if you and your spouse can't make any agreements, can't decide anything together, and you have to have every decision made by a judge, that's going to cost you a lot of money. But if you and your spouse are very much on the same page and can make a lot of agreements together, that's going to save you a lot of money. And I've had clients that can get divorced for just a couple thousand dollars because they come in with a plan and they know what they want to do and they use their time with the lawyers very wisely. I want to stop right there real quick and then circle back to the two things. So the first one you mentioned is conflict is typically the problem. And it's not going to be the divorce in and of itself or the parents not living together. It's the conflict. I want to highlight that because I think a lot of parents need to understand that. The other thing you talk about with, with the cost, to me, it kind of ties as a person who's never been divorced, you know, outside looking in, it seems like the cost kind of ties in. If there's a lot of conflict, there's potential that that conflict could translate into when you're being very adversarial and instead of trying to be collaborative, at least tolerant of each other enough to respect each other as fellow human beings in parents of these children, you don't have to agree with each other. And, and you know, you can at least try to not have a scorched earth policy, right? Absolutely. And that's part of our policy as a firm is we say to clients all the time, you have to love your kids more than you hate your spouse. 
And so you have to make their emotional well-being more important to you than getting revenge or getting your day in court or having the whole world know how awful a person your spouse is. Because at the end of the day, that doesn't benefit anyone except the lawyers, because we make a lot more money running those kinds of cases. And we don't want that for our clients. We want our clients to get through their process as cost effectively as possible, because at the end of the day, the more money that you have when you get through your divorce, the less stressful it is going to be. And so if we can keep your costs down by keeping the conflict down and really pick and choose your battles. I mean, I get clients that come in and are ready to just go to war over who's keeping which sofa. And at the end of the day, you're going to spend more on the lawyers fighting about the sofa than it would cost to go to Pottery Barn and buy a new sofa. So you have to really think about prioritizing your conflicts. And that's a good segue into this. What other options do you have? If we don't go to court to fight over the sofa, what's the option? So there are so many other options out there. People often think that the only way to get divorced is to go to court and to have a judge tell you, you're going to see the kids on Mondays and you're going to see the kids on Wednesdays and you're going to get Christmas and odd years and you're going to pay the mortgage and this is what's going to happen with retirement accounts. And honestly, that is less than 10% of the actual divorce cases resolved that way. The vast majority of people do work their cases out themselves. It's just a question of how long it's going to take and how hard it's going to be. So one of the things that I always talk to my new clients about is the menu of options that are out there. And one of the nice things about getting divorced, as long as you're outside of the court system, is you can mix and match and make any kind of process that you and your spouse can agree to. So you're not locked into anything actually specific. But I tell clients to think about it along a spectrum. So if at one end of the spectrum is going to court and letting a judge tell you what's going to happen, that's probably going to be the most time-consuming process. It's going to be the most expensive process, and it's going to be the process in which you and your spouse have the least control over your outcome. Because at the end of the day, the judge probably doesn't know that 4th of July is super important to mom's family and that they go to the beach every year for 4th of July. And when he enters an order that gives alternating 4th of Julys, these kids are going to be devastated because now they miss the big family reunion every other year. But you and your spouse know that. And so you may say, okay, mom gets 4th of July every year and dad gets Memorial Day every year. And those are the kinds of things you can work out yourselves. So at the other end of the spectrum is what I refer to as the kitchen table method. And this is you and your spouse have both met with a lawyer. You know what are the issues that need to be resolved to get you divorced. You kind of have a guideline of what things happen. And you're going to sit down over a cup of coffee. And the two of you, like very civil, respectful human beings, are going to work it out. Now, if you can do that, you probably aren't getting divorced. So a lot of clients laugh when I tell them that option. But the reason I always share it is because it can be used as a small piece of it. So maybe you and your spouse can't figure out what the plan is going to be with the marital home. You don't know. You both want to keep it. One thinks it's worth $500,000 and one thinks it's worth $700,000 and you can't agree on a number to buy it out. The lawyers can help you figure that out. But maybe you can sit at the kitchen table and figure out who's keeping the sofa and who's keeping the flat screen TV. Or maybe you can sit at the kitchen table and figure out how you're going to share 4th of July and the other holidays. And so I always mention that option to parents because it can save you a lot of money if you can figure some pieces of your divorce out on your own. In the middle of the options, which is where most of my clients land, are a couple of different alternative dispute resolution processes. And some are more formal than others. So we can have a very informal process where the lawyer, or even one of the parties, if your spouse chooses not to have a lawyer, are going back and forth with proposal letters, with draft agreements, where they say, you know, okay, here's a draft, tell me what you want to change, or here's a proposal that lays out the major terms. Are you okay with that? Where do we need to negotiate and change things? And that's a very common process for a lot of people to use. Two other more formal alternative dispute resolution processes are mediation, which a lot of people are familiar with, and collaborative divorce. 
Now, each of these processes could be its own interview and presentation in and of itself. So I'm going to give you the very abridged Cliff Notes version here of what these processes can look like. But no, again, they can be really customized to what your family needs. So mediation is a process where a neutral party, a neutral professional who's a trained mediator, hopefully, is going to help you and your spouse to reach a resolution. It's a great process in that it's often fairly inexpensive because you're paying one professional. It is efficient because there's just three of you scheduling to be at the table, and often your mediator can draft your agreement for you as well. A couple of caveats that I always tell clients to remember about mediation is that the mediator does not represent either one of you. They are not an arbitrator or a judge. They're not telling you what should happen. They're not telling you that the law says that you need to pay child support according to the Maryland Child Support Guidelines. So it's important to have met with a lawyer before you go to mediation to know what your rights and options are. Similarly, it's important to remember that the mediator does not represent either of you. And so if they draft an agreement, it is very wise to pay a lawyer to look at the agreement and make sure your interests are protected and that you understand it before you sign it. And I know people are often hesitant to use lawyers at all because they think anytime they set foot in a lawyer's office, it's gonna be several thousand dollars, but it doesn't have to be. You can find a lawyer who will review your separation agreement. It might take them an hour or two to review it and explain it to you and make sure you really understand it. And then if you're good with it, sign it. But it's important to know because if things are not done correctly, it's far more expensive to clean it up afterwards. The last caveat that I always remind people when they're looking for a mediator, in Maryland at least, there is no certification requirement to hold yourself out as a mediator. So literally someone can have done zero training in mediation, never taken a course on mediation, and just go, I think I can help people figure this out and put themselves out there as a mediator. So you wanna make sure you do your homework in picking a mediator. Look at who's on the court referral list to see who the court sends mediation cases to. Ask your friends and colleagues, post on your neighborhood listserv, reach out to attorneys and ask them how many cases they mediate. Is mediation a little tiny subpage on their website or is it a big chunk of their website? Is it a lot of what they do? And make sure you're looking for people that are really qualified. There are also a lot of different styles of mediation. And again, like I said, this could be a whole separate presentation. You wanna make sure you're getting a style of mediator that works for you. But mediation is a great option to help you and your spouse reach a resolution, especially if you're fairly well educated on the issues. And if you feel like you can really advocate for yourself, with your spouse and that you guys have an equal understanding of the issues. If one of you has run the finances for the entire marriage and the other person has no clue where you do your banking or what you have in assets, it's probably not a great case to mediate. Another option is collaborative divorce. And whereas most people are very familiar with mediation, I've heard that term tossed around, collaborative is not as commonly heard of. I'm a huge proponent of collaborative. I got trained to do collaborative divorce even before I got sworn into the Maryland bar. And I've practiced collaborative law since I started practicing law. With that being said, collaborative is not right for everyone. So here's my huge like red flag warnings. Just because you think this sounds lovely doesn't mean it's right for you. So talk to an attorney who does a lot of collaborative to see if it's good for you. But if it is good for your family, collaborative can be a great alternative dispute resolution process because it's interdisciplinary. And as I said earlier, the process of getting divorced at the end of the day is not a legal process. The courts handle it, so we think of it as a legal process, but the decisions that you and your spouse need to make as part of your divorce are things like, what is developmentally best for your kids? How often should they switch households? How much time should they spend with each parent? Do the housing arrangements lend themselves to a shared custody situation? How old are your kids? How much of their opinion should matter? Those are really child development questions, not legal. 
And the collaborative process usually uses a child specialist, a mental health professional who's trained in collaborative divorce, who helps guide the parents in developmental theory of what's good for their kids and helps them reach a resolution on arrangements. Another huge part of getting divorced is the finances. How are the kids' needs going to be met? How are the spouse's needs going to be met if there's a big difference in income between the two parties? What's going to happen with your house? What's going to happen with your bank accounts? What's happening with your debts, which is a huge issue for a lot of people? Those are all financial decisions. I can put my financial hat on and say to you, oh, yeah, your budget at the end of the month, you don't have enough money. We got to figure that out. But a financial advisor is often better able to help you figure out where to move things around and come up with creative ideas for how to make your budget balance. And so in the collaborative divorce process, we use a neutral financial professional who helps the party say, okay, we have X dollars coming in each month. How are we going to make everyone's needs get met? And we have this much in assets and this much in liability. What can we do with them to make sure that everyone's going to be okay at the end of the day? And people look at me after I say that and go, well, how are we going to make those decisions? I'm divorcing this person because we don't see eye to eye. We can't agree on things. And that's where the collaborative process uses what are called divorce coaches. And so these are mental health professionals. You can use a one coach model where there's just one divorce coach for both parties or a two coach model where each party has their own coach. And this coach is not providing therapy. This is not a therapeutic process. We're not going to work through what happened in your childhood. But they're going to say to you, okay, you need to communicate with your partner to get through this process. And we need to set you up so you can co-parent your children going forward. How are we going to do that? And I tell clients all the time that I truly believe in collaborative because I make the least amount of money in my collaborative cases. I do very little work. I get the team started. I advise my client. I advise them throughout. But I take a big backseat in the collaborative divorce because the mental health professionals and the financial professionals do all the heavy lifting. And then I help write the agreement at the end with the other party's lawyer. So it's a great option for a lot of families. And again, that could be a whole separate presentation. But if you're interested in trying to resolve your issues outside of court and you're looking for an attorney, definitely look for someone who puts a lot of emphasis on mediation and collaborative as options so that you can really have a good understanding of all your options. Awesome. I want to recap again, because I wrote down a couple notes that came out The first thing I want to highlight, and we're going to touch on right before we end as well, is you mentioned a lot of times where the person or people who are in the process of getting a divorce would be well served to take documents for review to an attorney. That's no different than, in my opinion, and I want to stress this is my opinion, than going to legal Zoom and getting a will done and going having an estate planning attorney review it and say, yep, it's good. Or you're drafting an LLC and you go to a business attorney and you say, hey, does this look good? Or I want to hire an employee. I need a contract. Does this look all right? You're not asking the attorney to draft everything, but an hour's worth of time could save you, I think, hours and hours of litigation down the road or a lawsuit or whatever catastrophic event you can think of. And I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. You could really hurt yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I have seen cases where bring me agreements that they have signed and they say, now I'm having issues with it. And I have to say to them, there's nothing I can do because there are a lot of issues in family law that once it's in a signed agreement, you're stuck. And unless your former spouse will cooperate with you in fixing it, there is absolutely nothing I can do. Or sometimes there is something I can do, but now you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on litigation In fact, I have one case, I think my case where my client has spent the most money in litigation and she's closing in close to $200,000 now and several years of litigation. 
And if she had just had an attorney look at it who really knew what they were doing, she could have avoided all of this. And that's an important thing to remember about attorneys as well, is that there are so many areas of practice of law. There's family law, there's estates and trusts, there's criminal, there's personal injury, there's business law, there's mergers and acquisitions. I could go on and on in the different areas of law. It's like I compare it often to medical practices. You wouldn't go see your primary care doctor to treat your cancer, right? You would see an oncologist who really focuses on that and that's all they do every day. Similarly, you wouldn't go see a specialist because you have a cough. You would go see your primary care doctor. You need to remember that that applies for law too. And so I always warn clients, be cautious of the lawyers that hold themselves out there and say they do what I call them a jack of all trades. They do every kind of law out there because if you're doing it all, you probably don't know the ins and outs very well. So certainly, you know, somebody might have two or three areas of practice. That's not unusual, but you want to make sure you get someone who, if you're going to see them for your divorce, that's really the area that they do. And similarly, if you have other factors that combine with it, make sure you consult with an attorney in that area as well. So if, for example, you have a child with special needs, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, make sure you see an attorney that has experience with families with children with special needs, because some of the laws are different in that situation. You want to make sure you're covered. If you and your spouse own a business together, make sure that you're consulting with a business attorney in your agreement, because there's going to be a lot of business implications of your separation agreement. So there's just a lot of things to think about. And in that in of itself, I think, Sarah, can be pretty intimidating people, because now it sounds like you need a table full of six or seven professionals. And to be fair, sometimes you might. If your situation is complicated, you might. But if it's just simple, just get an attorney that's qualified to do it. Don't go with the first person you see when you Google. Right. And the other thing I want to touch on, when you were talking about the collaborative divorce, there's two things with the collaborative. Again, I personally don't want to see people go to a family law attorney who says they are familiar with collaborative divorce. To your point, I want to make sure they're going to somebody that really knows it, understands it. Same thing with financial advisors. If I'm going to send somebody to a financial advisor who's thinking about this kind of thing, I want to make sure that financial advisor is at a minimum a certified financial planner, CFP. And I would also like to see the designation CDFA, Certified Divorce mm -hmm. Financial Analyst. Again, I'm coming from my personal bias it's because at a minimum, those two designations tell me somebody has gone above and beyond the average person to at least get a basic understanding. It's not going to make them an expert. I mean, you still, like you pointed out, sir, you still want to find out how much they've done. Is this the right. first one? Maybe you don't want to be their experiment. I think you made some really excellent points. I just wanted to highlight them. And I'm making notes here because I do think there's opportunity for additional webinars and videos. And you had touched on special needs. So let's go into that. Let's touch on real quick in Maryland, the requirements for divorce. And then we'll sure. circle back to the disabled child. Maryland, yeah. you were telling me, has changed recently, right? It has. There's been a lot of changes, actually, to Maryland law in the last 10 years or so as far as getting divorced. So let me start by saying Maryland is a little bit different than a lot of other states. People often come to me and they say to me, I need to file for a separation. That doesn't exist in Maryland. Under Maryland law, you and your spouse are separated when you're no longer living under the same roof and you're no longer engaged in any kind of sexual relations. As long as you have those two factors, you're separated. You do not have to sign anything. You do not have to file anything. You don't have to do anything to be physically separated under Maryland law. And that's an important distinction that many people are confused about. 
Another common myth is that people often think you have to be separated for one year to get divorced in Maryland. And while there are certain circumstances where that is still true, there have been a lot of changes to the law in the last few years that have made that requirement not necessary in every case. So one of the things that it's important to know under Maryland law is that you have to have what we call grounds for divorce. There has to be a basis for your divorce. You can't just say, I don't like you and I don't want to be married to you anymore and I want to divorce you. We do have one new ground that got added recently that kind of does that, but it doesn't say it specifically. So people often come to me and say, I want to file on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. We don't have that in Maryland. You can't do that. You have to allege a ground. And some of the grounds are very, very rare and you never hear about. So I won't really spend any time on them. They're things like, you know, if your spouse is imprisoned and has a sentence of more than three years, you can file under that ground. If your spouse is certified insane, that's actually a legal ground. If they have a mental health commitment, we very rarely use that. There's some grounds related to domestic violence. There is a ground related to adultery. But the two most common grounds that we see in Maryland are a separation of one year or a new ground that Maryland added in the last few years, and it's called mutual consent. So it used to be, when I first started practicing law, that to get divorced in Maryland, you had to have one of the grounds like adultery or domestic violence, or you had to be separated for at least one year before you could get your divorce. And there was even an older requirement that if your spouse didn't consent, then you had to be separated for two years before you could get your divorce. Now, under Maryland law, we have a new ground called mutual consent. And what mutual consent divorce says is that if you and your spouse have a signed separation agreement that resolves all the issues, and so you don't need the court to decide anything for you, that can be your ground for divorce. And so you don't have to be separated for one year anymore. You don't have to allege all the ugly stuff like adultery and domestic violence. You can just say, hey, we don't want to be married anymore. We've worked everything out and the court will grant you a divorce. And that's where the mediator can come in, right? The mediation or the collaboration that you were talking about. Which is a great way to get to that agreement so that you can get divorced. And most importantly for a lot of clients is that it's financially difficult to separate before they've resolved everything. So that process allows you to remain in the house and still get your divorce or even get your divorce quickly after separating. And that's a huge advantage. So we often have clients who say, look, it's September. We don't want to sell our house until the spring because we want to hit the spring market or we want our kids to finish out this school year in this house. But we want to go ahead and resolve everything. And we're just we've reached a point where we're roommates. We're not in love with each other anymore. We don't want to be married to each other anymore, but we can tolerate each other well enough to live in the house together for six more months. Well, we can go ahead and get them divorced under mutual consent, which allows a lot of other options like moving some assets around that have to wait for a divorce to be finalized. So it's a great option. Another thing that's important to remember is that you do have to be a resident of the state where you are getting divorced. At least one party does. I get calls often from people who they both live in D.C. I can't help them if they both live in D.C. One party has to live in Maryland for them to get divorced in Maryland. And so that's an important requirement to remember. But the biggest one that people often get confused about is the separation and then that they have to be separated for one year. One other thing to just keep in mind is when the legislature first passed the mutual consent as a ground for divorce and added it to the Maryland Code, people got very nervous that all of a sudden people were going to rush into agreements and agree to things that were not in their kids' best interest because they just wanted to sign an agreement and they just wanted to be divorced. So when the law first passed, it said that you could only use mutual consent if the two parties did not have minor children in common. So if they had children together under the age of 18, they could not use mutual consent. So even if they had their signed separation agreement, they still had to be separated one year to get divorced. 
in 2000, I believe, 18, the legislature saw that we did not have a mad rush on the courthouse of people getting divorced. We did not have all of a sudden people signing these crazy custody agreements just to get their agreement done. And so they removed that requirement. And so mutual consent is now available as a ground for divorce, even if you and your spouse have minor children together. And that's an important thing to be aware of, because if you start Googling, you may find references to the old law where you couldn't do it if you had minor children. But that has changed. And I believe it was in 2018. So when you say live in Maryland, do you mean be a Maryland resident or should they have lived here for like three months? You have to have resided in Maryland for the past six months. And again, that's an area where the law has even changed in recent years. It used to be that you had to be a resident of Maryland for 12 months. That changed, especially in Maryland. It's a big issue because the way our state is laid out, for those of you that are not familiar with Maryland geography, go look at a map because Maryland is a really fun-shaped state. And we are all over the place and we share a lot of borders. And so it is not uncommon, depending on where you are in the state, to hop back and forth between D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, or Maryland and Pennsylvania, or Maryland and West Virginia, or Maryland and Delaware. And so the legislature realized that we had so many shared borders that a lot of our population might be popping back and forth across states. So they reduced it to six months instead of 12, which makes it a little bit easier. And again, this speaks to me why it's so important, if nothing else, to hire an attorney for an hour, just to make sure you're clear on where you fall into all of this. Uh, Right, because the last thing you want to do is you go see a Maryland mediator they draft this whole agreement for you to get divorced in Maryland, and then you file with the court, and the court says, we can't divorce you because you haven't lived in Maryland for six months. Or one of you lives in D.C., and the other one just moved into Virginia. We can't divorce you anymore. So you don't want to go through all that work and then not be able to use your document. And once the divorce, and this is just me asking because I'm curious, once this process starts, is it pretty fast? You go through mediation, you turn the documents in, and you file for divorce. You know, you mentioned there's no one-year waiting period or anything, but is it going to be six, seven months to get through the court system, the docket? So this is my favorite lawyer answer. It depends. And this is the answer that I give to almost everything that my clients ask me. I actually have a little thing. And if, if I was able to physically be in my office right now, unlike my kitchen, thanks to coronavirus, I'd be able to show you, but I have this great thing that sits on my office and it's sort of like a magic eight ball, but it's a little silver pendulum with a ball and it swings around and gives you different answers. And so sometimes when clients ask me questions, I'll tell them to swing the ball and see what the answer is. But at the end of the day, it does vary. I tell clients that once you get to the point of having a signed separation agreement, you've done 95% of the work. You've done all the heavy lifting. You've done all the hard stuff. At that point, you're filing for what we call an uncontested divorce where you're going to the court and saying, hey, we've worked everything out. We just need you to grant us our divorce. And maybe do a couple other things like move some retirement accounts around, which can only be done with a court order. Um, or maybe res- maybe one spouse wants to go back to a former name or a maiden name, and that can be done at the time of the divorce. But other than that, you're asking for very little. And so that process is very simple. There are actually forms available on the Maryland judiciary. And so often if I have clients that are really trying to save some money, I'll send them the forms and the information and they go and file their divorce themselves and they don't use me for it. Now, other clients say, look, I've done 95% of the work. I just want this part to go smoothly and I don't want to screw it up. So can you just do it? And I usually have an associate do it at a much lower hourly rate because that's pretty simple lawyering. But how long that process takes really varies depending on what county you're in. So one of the things that people often don't realize about Maryland law is that we have state laws that apply to all the courts, but each county court is individually run And each county court gets to determine their processes and their procedures for a number of things. 
So every county in Maryland has what we call a self-help family law clinic where you can go and ask questions about the process and procedure in that county to get your divorce. Every county has something called a differentiated case management system for family law. And if you Google that, you can actually find it for your county online in almost every county. And that will walk you through the procedure and the process of getting an uncontested divorce in that county because it does vary. And some counties have one like additional form that you need to fill out, but it varies. So in some counties, you can file for divorce and get divorced very, very quickly. I mean, we're talking six to eight weeks and you're divorced. Other counties take a little bit longer, depending on both their process, the volume that that county hears in cases. So for example, if you're in Montgomery, Prince George's, Anne Arundel, Baltimore City, or Baltimore County, your process is probably going to take longer than if you're in, for example, Cecil County, or if you're in St. Mary's County. Those counties see a much smaller volume of cases, and so they're able to process things faster. Another piece that varies depending on the counties is Maryland is in the process of moving to an online case system. And so we call it MDEC, M-D-E-C. And all of the counties in Maryland at this point are on MDEC, except for Prince George's, Montgomery, Baltimore City, and Baltimore County, because they left the largest counties for the end because they're going to be the most extensive to move online. So especially with the shutdown, and it's important to remember that courts were closed for most matters from the middle of March until the beginning of June. And so that has created a huge backlog in all the counties, but it's much worse in those four counties I just mentioned because they're not online. So they were much more limited in what their employees could do from home during the shutdown. And they're the biggest population of counties. So in those counties, you probably are gonna be looking at several months to get your uncontested divorce versus some of the smaller counties that are on MDEC where they're still processing them fairly quickly right now. Another thing that's important to know right now is that currently all of the counties, I believe, are offering virtual uncontested divorces. So whereas before, in every county in Maryland, you had to physically go to the courthouse to get your divorce. And it would just be a 10-minute, 15-minute hearing. It didn't take long when you were there, but you had to physically appear. Because of the coronavirus crisis, I believe all of the counties are currently offering online uncontested divorces, and they use a go-to meeting or another online platform, and they send you instructions, and everybody logs in from their location, and somebody from the courthouse logs in, and they're actually granting divorces via video conference. So even though people often think the courts are closed or they're doing very limited operations, which is true, you can still get divorced even in the non-MDEC counties. So I know Baltimore City, Montgomery County, they are also doing these online divorce hearings. So you can get divorced even with this crisis going on. Awesome. So we're going to shift gears and go into something completely different and talking about my population that these webinars are meant to serve are specifically families whose children have an intellectual and or developmental disability. And from what you and I were talking about previously before we recorded, there are some very substantial differences between divorcing with a child without a disability and an intellectual disability specifically after they turn 18, as opposed to a child who has an intellectual disability over the age of 18. So what happens with that? Yeah, and this is one of the areas that I'm very passionate about from my time as a teacher, um, is making sure that we're taking care of our families that have children with special needs. And we have an attorney in our office whose practice is focused primarily on serving children and families that have a child with some special needs. So there's a couple important things to remember. When your child turns 18, 
regardless of whether they are neurotypical or have very, very significant disabilities, they are a legal adult, which means that you can no longer make decisions for them and you no longer legally have any financial obligation to support them. Now, I get clients all the time and say, well, my 18-year-old can't support themselves anyway, even if they are neurotypical. Unfortunately, the law doesn't address those kids in Maryland. They're on their own. But if you have a child that has significant disabilities that impact his or her ability to support themselves, then there are provisions that allow for child support past the age of 18. And that's really important to keep in mind when you're negotiating your divorce, because then it comes into play with your social security benefits as well for your child and their qualification for Medicaid. So you really want to make sure you've gone to an attorney that is well-versed in these issues. In a perfect world, you and your spouse will cooperate to address your child's support after the age of 18. And the best way to do it, and Eric is the perfect person to guide you through this, is to set up a special needs trust for your child and to make sure that the child support, because your child's expenses are not going to be covered by Social Security, that the money is there for your child, but it doesn't count against them for Social Security purposes. So you can maximize the benefits that are available. But again, that requires both parents to cooperate. So it's really important to address those financial issues for your child of what are we going to do when this child turns 18 and there's no longer an obligation to pay child support. And again, you can go to the court and the court can order it, but the court can only do certain limited things and it may then have a negative impact on the social security benefits. Another thing that's important to think about is who's going to make the decisions for your child once that he or she turns 18. Now, again, most 18 year olds probably shouldn't be making their own decisions, but we legally do so, and there's no workaround for that. But if your child does have intellectual disabilities, they probably need a guardian at the age of 18. And so that's an important thing to be thinking about. Now, if your child's three or four, you maybe don't need to be thinking about that quite yet. But if you're divorcing just a few years before your child who has special needs is going to turn 18, you should address everything in one fell swoop if you're trying to resolve it outside of court. And there's a process called guardianship. And in Maryland, we have two different types of guardianship. One is guardianship of the person, which means that you make decisions for the person that you are the guardian of, like medical decisions. Or if it's an adult disabled child, it might be educational decisions because they may be continuing in the school system until their 21st birthday. It might be treatment decisions, behavioral therapy decisions. And the person who has guardianship of the person is going to be the one that's responsible for those decisions. Could also be where the child lives. Can you continue to provide care for your child in your home? Is there a need to maybe consider a residential treatment facility at some point? Those are all decisions that are with the guardian of the person. And just like under family law, we can have joint custody. Parents can be co-guardians of their children. And again, you can turn to mediation and collaborative as a way to help you work out a plan for what that's going to look like if you and your spouse are divorcing and have trouble making decisions together. The other kind of guardianship we have in Maryland is guardianship of the property. And this is who controls the alleged disabled person's finances. Now, if you're talking about a child, they probably don't have any assets. You probably have never put anything in your child's name, especially if you know they have significant disabilities. You've probably protected things. And so it may not be relevant for children with special needs, but I always mention it because we say we look at families and family dynamics from birth to grave. And so we're thinking about your grandparents too, or your parents as they're aging. And your parents or your grandparents may have significant assets and they may reach a point where due to dementia or Alzheimer's or just old age, they can no longer make their own decisions. And if they didn't do adequate estate planning when they were younger and in a better place, 
then you may need to get guardianship of an elderly family member as well. And so guardianship of the property is available so that you can control their finances and make sure their needs are met and their expenses are paid. So those are the two really important things that you need to think about if you have a child with special needs is financially, how is your child going to be supported by mom and dad once you get divorced and once that child turns 18? And guardianship-wise, who's going to make the decisions for your child and what is that going to look like going forward because your child may not be able to consent to medical treatments or may not be able to consent to educational decisions on his or her own. And I would add to that, Sarah, if you or your ex-spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse are thinking about moving out of state, you really need to consider what waiver benefits are you going to get in the new state. An example I have is last year I had a case where a family was here in Maryland was dad and New Mexico was mom, and they wanted an impartial comparison of the benefits. You know, Virginia is just as you mentioned, right across the border. And I will tell you, adult benefits in Virginia are much, much worse than here in Maryland. And that's just maybe half hour, 45 minute ride from my house. So everything you're pointing out, I think is very valid. And it speaks to what you started this with. Families can really help everybody by willing to talk to each other like adults, trying to set aside that emotionally charged situation. I mean, I'm not making light of it. And it, and it is very difficult. Leads me to one of the things that I wanted to mention. And one of the biggest things that I tell all my clients is if you're going through a separation and divorce, I don't care how amicable it is or how high conflict it is, you need to be in therapy. You need to have a therapist to get you through this process. Because whether you're the person that initiated it, whether you're the person that didn't want it, whether it was a mutual decision, we took your life's roadmap and now we're throwing it all up in the air and we're seeing where the pieces land. And it's a really hard process. And one of the best ways that clients can save money through their divorce is having a good therapist. Because so often I get clients who call me and they say, you're not going to believe what my spouse did and they're such a jerk or they're such a far worse words I hear all the time. And I say to them, I can't file a motion with the court to ask the court to order your spouse not to be a jerk. Like they just can't do that. I can't solve this problem for you. There are two things you need to do. One is you need to learn how to deal with your spouse because you're not gonna change your spouse. You didn't change them during the marriage. You're not changing them now that you're getting divorced. And how are you going to handle your own emotions and feelings when they behave that way? And those are really things that a therapist can coach you through and talk you through. And first of all, they're much cheaper per hour than I am. They often take insurance and they're going to have better advice for you than I am. I mean, I try to put my therapist hat on and I can tell you the things that they've taught us over the years, but why are you paying me my rate to do that? And so one of my most common refrains to clients is, Call your therapist. Yeah. Call your therapist yeah. and talk about this. And even better is sign a release between your therapist and your lawyer to allow them to talk. So that if I know a client is having a really hard emotional time with something that we're trying to work through in the case, I'll call their therapist and say, hey, heads up. In the next session, I need you to work with our mutual client on this issue because this is where we are. This is what we need to get done. And you need to help them get there. And so they can really support you through that. And I generally have a policy that pretty much every client who's working with me has to be in therapy to work with me. And I do it because it's better for the client. It saves them money and it helps them to come out better on the other side. That's awesome. And from what I've heard, it can be difficult to find therapists, especially in network. So I've never used it, but I've heard of this organization called BetterHelp, where you can do online therapy. That mm -hmm. may be a consideration. But I wrote down, because I'm going to put it in the show notes, 
that we definitely make sure because uh, I hadn't thought about it, sign and release for the therapist and the attorney to talk. So I'll make sure I capture that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And I mean, the nice thing about, again, the coronavirus is it has taught us how many things can go online. And while I think that online therapy is not the same as in-person therapy, it's still better to be in the same room with your therapist. It is a good option, especially if you have young kids, you're working full time, you're going through a divorce and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to carve out one more hour a day to be in therapy plus 40 minutes to drive there and 40 minutes to drive home. And I got to get a babysitter and yada, yada, yada. Whereas maybe you can schedule therapy from noon to one on your lunch break and just shut your door at your office and do your therapy then. Two things I always recommend in finding a therapist is look for people, just like Eric said earlier, when you're looking for a financial advisor, someone who has their CDFP or their CDFA, make sure that you're looking for a therapist who is trained in collaborative law, because that means that they're working a lot with families that are going through separation and divorce. Ask your lawyer for recommendations. If they're really in the mental health network, they should be able to give you a list of therapists that they recommend who work really well with people going through separation and divorce. Another thing that I always offer to my clients is, look, if you can get a printout of everyone who takes your insurance, send it over to me. I'll take a look at it and let you know if there's any therapists I know of on the list that are good and I can recommend. The challenge with that is that, as we all know, dealing with insurance companies is a nightmare. And so most therapists... Once they're good at what they do and they have a well-established practice, say, I'm not dealing with it anymore. I don't take insurance. I'll give you the paperwork. You can submit it on your own and get reimbursed as an out-of-network provider. So you do, to find somebody good, you are often paying out-of-network and getting reimbursed from insurance. But there are a handful of therapists out there who are committed to providing service. And so they do take insurance and are really good. And there are also some that are just younger in their practice. So they take insurance, but are also excellent. So ask your attorney for recommendations and make sure you're getting someone that really specializes in working with people getting through separation and divorce, because those are very unique issues. It's not your traditional therapy necessarily. And from the financial side of it, if you have a therapist that doesn't take insurance, that therapy is a qualified medical expense. And if you're getting a divorce, you're after the divorce is final, your income's probably going to be lower. So it's going to be easier to meet that threshold to have a qualified medical expense deduction. Not that that's the reason you're going for therapists, but I got to throw it out there because that's just the way my brain works. Absolutely. And this is why, and Eric just gave a perfect illustration of why I always tell clients we should be working with a financial advisor. Because those are the kinds of things that aren't necessarily on my radar because I'm the lawyer, not the financial advisor. But there are all kinds of great things you can do. And sometimes we can move around, you know, who claims head of household on tax returns and who pays for the medical expenses using a health savings plan and who has the dependent care account that can pay for the summer camp. And there's just so many things we can do within the financial system to try to help people save money. And that's where spending some money on a good financial advisor can be money very well spent in your divorce. And I know we've talked about this. Many people may think we're beating a dead horse, but I really want to close on this piece right here that an attorney does not equal litigation and you don't have to be in court to get divorced. I mean, I guess you do. You do for that 10 minute uncontested divorce hearing where the hardest question that clients get asked is, are you currently married? And they don't know how to answer that because they are still legally married, but they're separated or they're going through the divorce process. And that's seriously the hardest question you get asked if you're doing an uncontested divorce. It's questions like, are you over the age of 18? Are you in the U.S. military or armed forces? Is the agreement that you've reached with your spouse in your kid's best interest? Those are the kinds of questions that you get asked. It takes 10 minutes. It's super easy. It's important to know that you do not have to let a judge make the decisions for you and your spouse. If you guys can work together, and I've done uncontested divorces in cases with people that are extremely high conflict, and we can still get it done with the right resources a lot of the time and the right supports for the family. 
There are some cases that absolutely have to be litigated. And I do litigate cases, particularly, and this is a large part of my practice, is if you are married to a narcissist and a true narcissist. Now, everyone comes in and tells me my spouse is a narcissist. That's like a favorite line. But there are a lot of people that would qualify for a true diagnosis of narcissism. And if you're married to a narcissist, it may be very difficult to divorce that person because they're the smartest person in the room. So there are cases where you have to go to court. Also, a lot of uh, cases where there's been significant domestic violence or abuse of children. Those are cases that we're probably not going to be able to reach a compromise and we will have to take them to court. But like I said before, litigation represents about 10% of the total population getting divorced. The other 90% work it out. And if we're able to do so, then you guys maintain control and you make all the decisions and you save a lot of money at the end of the day. I tell clients all the time, whose kids are you going to pay for to go to college? Your kids or my kids? Because you can spend your kid's whole college fund litigating and fighting with your spouse and just fund my kid's college. And that's great if you want to do that. But my guess is you'd rather pay for your own kids to go to college. And if you and your spouse can work things out, we can keep the cost down a lot and really get you through this process as inexpensively as possible, but with a good outcome that's going to be durable for you in the long run. So you're not running back to court every couple of years to fight about something new. So what I've heard throughout this presentation that you've given, Sarah, is a common theme, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really sounds like the more that the two spouses can put aside their ego, perhaps their fear of somebody getting more than I'm getting or what have you, and focus more on, hey, we have this child or children together. We want their life or lives to be as good as possible. I would think it's almost easier to lose sight of, in a good way, that I don't want him or her to get something because I want to make sure I win. Yeah, absolutely. If you're coming into it with a mentality of winners and losers, I can tell you the winners are going to be the lawyers and the losers are going to be your children. But if instead you come into it with a mentality of this is a lousy situation we're in, nobody envisioned us being here because nobody gets married anticipating getting divorced. But the reality of it is it happens to about 50% of our population. So a lot of people are in those shoes. And if we can try to keep the conflict down and people will often come to my office and they're like, no, we don't get along at all. There's no way this is going to work. Well, we have a lot of tools and resources to help make this work. It's not like everyone comes into my office and is like, we're best friends and we just want to split up. I get those occasionally, but you know, we have a lot of tools and resources to help people get through this process. And one thing I want to mention too, on that end note is it's not just minor children. So from a legal perspective, our role or the involvement of the children ends once they're 18. If your kids are all over the age of 18, we're not putting anything in your agreement about your kids unless you guys both want to. As far as the court's concerned, your kids are no longer part of the equation. But that's not real life. Even once your kids are 18, they're still very much in your life. And so we want to make sure that we are preserving that relationship. Even if you don't have to figure out, you know, are the kids with me Wednesday night? Which weekend do you have the kids? Who has 4th of July because your kids are grown? You do still have other dynamics to manage. And you want to think about when your kids are getting married, are you going to have the relationship going out of this that your kids aren't stressed on their wedding day about, oh my gosh, how are mom and dad going to be in the same room as each other? Or at their graduate school graduation, when they come off the stage with their law degree or their medical degree or their whatever degree, are they going to have to look out at the auditorium and go, okay, I've got one parent on this side and I've got the other parent on this side. Who do I go hug first? Because they can't sit next to each other. Um, And we really try to help people get to a point where their kids are not going to be caught in the middle, whether their kids are babies or whether their kids are in their 30s, because they're still your kids. We still want to protect them from your conflict as much as we can. 
And that's awesome points, Sarah, because I, that wasn't where my head was. I really appreciate you bringing back to the adult children, too. So we've talked a lot about if somebody was working with you or somebody from your firm, kind of that point of view, right? Have you ever felt that the opposing attorney or the attorney for the other spouse was encouraging the spouse perhaps to take it to court? Is that a concern? Absolutely, because the only process you can force your spouse into is litigation. Everything else is voluntary and everything else is about reaching an agreement. So even if one person has a highly litigious lawyer, you may get stuck down that road, even though that's not what you want. And that's, again, where we litigate cases because we have no choice because we can't let our clients agree to something that's not, at the end of the day, at least in the realm of fair and reasonable. So I tell clients often when they first come to see me and they say, I'm just thinking about separating and being divorced, your path to divorce is like a tree. And you're at the base of the tree when you first think about getting separated and divorced. Now, at the end of every branch and twig and whatever, there's a leaf. We're going to get you to a leaf. We just don't know what path we're going to take to get there. And it's going to be determined by decisions that you make. It's going to be determined by decisions that your spouse makes. It's going to be determined by decisions that the opposing counsel makes. So sometimes I get clients that come in and they say, I've got Joe Schmo as my spouse's lawyer. And I'm like, that's great. I love Joe. We work really well together. He practices of the same philosophy I do. I trust him. He's not going to play games. He's not out to screw either one of you. He has the same approach I do. I can tell you right then and there, that's going to cut your costs down a lot. Other times, it's not Joe Schmo, and it's, you know, Beverly Smith. And Beverly Smith is going to come in, and she's going to just want to take it to court because she's a litigator, and she loves being in court, and she thinks everything should go to court. And I can tell my client right then and there, we're not going to waste time on mediation because it's not going to get us anywhere because it's going to court. And so that can determine a lot of it. And so it's important, again, if you and your spouse are on the same page of we want to pay the lawyers as little as possible, one of the great things you can do is when one of you finds a lawyer, say to that lawyer, hey, who do you work well with? Are there other attorneys you would recommend to have on the other side? Because the worst cases for me to handle for my clients are cases where the other side is extremely litigious or extremely incompetent. And there are a lot of incompetent lawyers out there. I hate to say it, but another common myth, lawyers in Maryland are not required to do any kind of ongoing training or any kind of certifications. Once you pass the bar exam, once you graduate from law school, as long as you don't get reported to the Attorney Grievance Commission for doing something wrong, there is no monitoring or oversight of lawyers in Maryland. So there are a lot of lawyers out there. And they give our profession a bad name. And there's a reason why all the lawyer jokes exist, because some of them are true. So I want nothing more than to have a competent attorney on the other side who's going to take the same approach I do of, hey, let's keep the conflict down. Let's give our clients reality checks. Let's not just tell them whatever they want to hear. And at the end of the day, that's going to benefit you and your spouse. So I'm always happy to give names of other lawyers I recommend. And people are often hesitant to take them. And I understand that. And that's fine if you're not comfortable with it. But that's a really great way to keep your costs down is to get two lawyers that respect each other and have the same philosophy of practice. And do you recommend that people interview more than one attorney? This is two part. One, do you recommend people interview more than one attorney? And two, how much should personality come into play? So those are actually one of the same questions, I think. I don't think you necessarily have to interview more than one attorney because I think you know when the fit is right. And if you walk out of your meeting and you don't feel better and you don't feel a sense of relief and you just don't feel like you connected, that's not the right attorney for you. And there are all different styles of attorneys. And I'm very upfront with clients. I'm not the right attorney for everyone. 
And sometimes I know in a first consultation that I'm not right for that person. And I'll tell them, look, my practice doesn't align with what your goals are. Let me give you some names of some people that are going to better align for you. So I do think it's important to find an attorney that you connect with and that you feel confident in, because this is a very personal and emotional process and journey you're going to be on. And you want a real partner in your attorney. If you just don't get the right vibe, you're with the wrong attorney. So I think you should interview multiple attorneys until you find that person that's the right fit. If you come out of your first meeting and you feel like I got a good fit, you don't need to interview more people. But if you don't come out feeling that way, you should call around. And that's really challenging because the other thing I will say is most attorneys that I recommend who are good attorneys are going to charge for initial consultations. And so that really drives up the cost up front. And I know that's hard for clients to hear, but just like, you know, you don't expect to go see your doctor for free and see if they're a good fit for you. Unfortunately, we have to charge for our time. And so most lawyers will charge for an initial consultation. Now, there are some great lawyers. I don't want to get the wrong impression. There are some great lawyers that are really committed to free consults because they want to make sure they connect with the client. So just because someone offers a free consult doesn't mean they're not a good lawyer. But the vast majority of people that I usually recommend to friends when they ask for referrals are people that aren't going to offer free consultations. So it is worth setting aside, you know, a couple hours worth of legal fees if you're going to be in a long kind of drawn out process to make sure you're finding an attorney that's a good fit for you and your family. And that's where you're going to want to do your homework first by going to the attorney's website to get a feel for what type of law the attorney practices. I mean, I don't think you're going to be able to see how many times they've done collaborative. But to your point earlier, you talked about, is this something that takes up a little piece of their website or is this something that they really make sure they address? And look at their involved, you know, all attorneys have their bios on their website. What organizations are they a part of? You know, collaborative practice is very into um, what we call our practice groups. So are they a member of their county practice group? Are they a member of the international practice group? Did they post on their firm's Facebook page about going to some of the conferences or some of the trainings? Like I said earlier, attorneys don't have any requirements to do ongoing education. So look at their website or their social media and see, are they voluntarily doing things like that to make sure that they're keeping their skills up? Are they going to the AFCC, the Association of Family and Consultory Courts, which is an interdisciplinary organization that's really committed to alternative dispute resolution and children first. Are they going to the AFCC conference? Um, are they involved in their state AFCC chapter? Really look at where their activities lie because that will tell you a lot and ask for personal recommendations and referrals. Ask around. One of the best ways is through like a neighborhood Facebook group. And you can usually ask the administrator of the Facebook group to post anonymously. So you don't have to say who you are. Just ask, you know, could somebody anonymously post looking for a divorce lawyer? Here's what I'm looking for. And then message the people that post and say, hey, did you use this person? What was your case like? Was it high conflict? What were the best things you'd say about your lawyer? What are the worst things you'd say about your lawyer? Definitely ask around because a good lawyer who has a good reputation, you'll find. Sarah, I really appreciate the amount of time you took to go into this. We will be seeing more of you because there are some other topics I want to review with you. Is there anything else that I should have asked that I didn't? Or you just want to make sure people really get? No, the only other thing I would say is just remember that every family is different. And so every divorce is different. And so that's why, again, it's so important to consult with an attorney because your specific circumstances are going to be different than everybody else out there. So don't go based on my neighbor said she got alimony for 10 years. So I want alimony for 10 years or my neighbor's wife never sees the kids. So I don't think my wife should ever see the kids. Like every family is different. And that's why it's really important to get good advice from a lawyer. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Special Needs Navigator podcast. We invite your feedback and comments. 
Please leave a review wherever you're listening and hit like, follow, and share to help spread the word. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For show notes, information about our guests, and more information about Special Needs Navigator, please visit www.specialneedsnavigator.us.